Hi everyone, it's Vicky Lon. This episode is a little different because it unpacks the world building of a specific novel. While there will be world building spoilers, the author and I do not discuss the plot, so you'll still have plenty to enjoy should you listen to this episode before picking up the book. However, if you prefer to avoid spoilers altogether, I highly recommend you read The Body Scout by Lincoln Michelle first, then come back and enjoy this episode. Thanks for listening. Everything that happens in American society is um, influenced by the world and the culture and the political structures and who has power and who has money and all of that. We've brought up Elon Musk a couple of times and he has a company called Neuralink, or maybe that's what he names the technology, that is trying to interface the mind with computers, in which case, if that kind of technology happened, you very much could sell your brain you know, or your body in a certain way. Welcome to Speculative Sandbox, your audio playground for creative storytellers. My name is Vicki Lawn, and each episode, I and a guest will unpack a fiction trope with an eye for character development and narrative structures. Make sure to look for Speculative Sandbox on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter, where you can join the conversation. Leave comments or questions, or let us know what other tropes we should cover. When the real world just doesn't cut it, let's get lost in a fictional one. This year, when Speculative Sandbox was just an idea on paper, one of my goals was to have a world-building episode dedicated to The Body Scout. New York Times calls it a timeless and original sci-fi thriller. Esquire calls it a breathlessly paced techno-thriller characterized by stunning, spiky world-building, and lists it as one of the top 50 science fiction novels of all time. This book is a cyberpunk spectacle of body modification, cybernetics, biopharmaceuticals, robot technology, cloning, mind control, and more. Well, not only do I get to unpack this world of a future New York with you today, but author Lincoln Michelle joins me as your tour guide. I'm so excited to share this interview with you. We talk about how fiction imitates real life, the socio and political impacts of body modifications, and whether or not we would want to live in his fictional world. Well, Lincoln, I am so excited to have you on the podcast with me. First of all, I am a huge fan of The Body Scout. I picked it up at the store, found the premise to be super intriguing, and then devoured it in a weekend. And I'm not even a sports fan, so I really just enjoyed everything that you created in this world. So thank you for being here and joining me on this uh, tour guide through your fictional New York. Well, thank you so much for having me. And that's uh, that's very flattering to hear. You know, as a maybe this is like a weird thing to admit up front and maybe I'll start getting hate mail, but I'm not the biggest sports fan either. I enjoy it. I enjoy sports, but even though that's kind of centered in the novel, it wasn't like my biggest concern. It was more my way into the other concerns I had. Yeah. And I can absolutely see that because sports and sports medicine is a good opportunity to talk about some of the things you're, you discover in the book. So I'll, I'll read a quick summary of the story. Uh, in this, quote, timeless and original sci-fi thriller, as heralded by the New York Times, a hard-boiled baseball scout must solve the murder of his brother in a world transformed by body modifications. What inspired you to write this story? You know, I think it's always kind of hard to, like, know what, where a novel really comes from, because I feel like, you know, the ideas kind of accumulate over time. But the probably the impetus for me was that I always loved cyberpunk kind of books and and science fiction noir kind of books i love the kind of noir hard-boiled voice 
And I think I really, at some point in time, just thought I'd like to write a cyberpunk book that was focused on the body instead of the internet, basically. Mm-hmm. Like, obviously, I'm I'm a big internet user. I mean, who isn't anymore? And I waste a lot of my time on Twitter, but I kind of find virtual reality and the metaverse and web three and all of that to be somewhat boring at this point. And so I was trying to think if I could maybe write a cyberpunk book that took out the cyber and replaced it with, with the body, with flesh. That was my initial interest. I think that's a great idea because I, I think a lot of people listening to this might think, oh, I really hate this about my body, or I wish I can change this about me, or if only I could be taller, stronger, uh, then I could play the sports that I love. And I think you speak to that human need in this book. And I really enjoyed that. Well, thanks. Yeah. I mean, you know, we all have, <laughs> we all have bodies and we also all have, I think, you know, issues with our own bodies and various levels of illness and disability. And, you know, certainly what you said is something I wanted to explore, but I also really wanted to explore a kind of world in which, well, I, you know, we're, we're heading towards a world in which body modification of various types is going to be more and more common, right? We're, we're developing different drugs and different treatments and different radical surgeries uh, every day. And I wanted to look at a, a world that explored that uh, through a kind of lens of hyper-capitalism and, uh, but also explore that from different angles. So I wanted the characters to have very different relations to that kind of central question of what do we do with the body in an age in which we can modify it? So there are characters that resist it, characters that embrace it fully, characters that are kind of somewhere between. And that was uh, another kind of inspiration for me. I see that in how you set your environment. So I'm going to read a a couple of blurbs from the book and then I'll follow up with the question. So this takes place in New York City where outside the bright lights of the city illuminated the nighttime smog. You have a billboard floating past the window flashing a growth cola ad. And then the slogan on it says, the climate has changed, your body should too. And then the lower part of the city was marinating in smog. It was the big cloud, the gunk that coalesced around the factories, thickened above the oil fires, and then floated across America like a dirty tongue licking the land. What a great visual, but it also shows you what happens when you have that capitalistic need to produce, produce, produce at the um, expense of your environment. Yeah. And, you know, I'm glad, I'm glad you read that passage because that was a line that I, the kind of line about the the cloud licking, licking the land was a line I really liked, but I remember I almost took it out of the book because I thought it was maybe a little unrealistic in some way, but then I kept it in because I wasn't trying to write a strictly realist book. This is not like hard science fiction and that wasn't my goal. But uh, so I, I almost cut it out. I left it in. And then I remember as my book was coming out, there was this news report that New York City's air was the worst that it had been in like 50 years because of wildfires out in, in Oregon and, and out in the West had swept all the way across America. So kind of one of those moments where my attempt at being extreme and dystopian just turned out to be realistic. Oh, yeah. And and in 2020, the mountain that I live near set on fire, um, lightning struck it overnight, and um, eventually the entire mountain went up in a blaze. And as a result, the cloud and the the inability to see, you know, it it definitely, I got the, the visual that you're describing with the dirt tongue licking the land. Because it also makes you think like, ew, gross, you know, and I I wouldn't (laughs) want to lick dirt either. It just puts all the words together in your mind the right way. 
Yeah, I, I took a trip to um, Montana for a wedding in 2021, the only trip I took during the pandemic. And we were near these like giant mountains that you could see completely clearly. And then literally the next day they were obscured um, again from wildfire smoke. So I don't really know what I'm saying there, except that we, we live in weird and dark times. Yeah, yes, we do. <laughs> okay, so let's establish the rules of your world. Um, I broke it up into categories, but to summarize, we have body modifications, cybernetics, biofarms, robots, and more. And I see it as this cool playground of technological advancements that you show both the positive impacts and the negative, particularly when it comes to politics and systemic issues that result from these advancements. For writers who are interested in exploring their own complex future, building their own sci-fi uh, world, what is your advice for weaving in those societal impacts? Oh, um, that's a great question. I mean, I do think that those things are, are very important. Um, I think you want to have that sense of larger systems at play, or rather, I want that sense. You know, people can, can like whatever they, they want in fiction. Um, I don't know if this is really answering your question, but I will say just for my own process, that, as I said before, I wasn't really trying to write something that was purely realistic. I would call the book maybe expressionistic in that it's taking a kind of, a lot of things that could very much happen, but maybe it's making them um, a little more hyperbolized than I hope that they'll, <laughs> they'll occur. Um, but for me, my organizing principle is often one of theme. So for me, I was always trying to think about how do I bring everything in the world back to the central question of, of the body in this future. So, you know, if you go through the book, there's a lot of little details about, well, almost anything in the book kind of ties back to that. I, I remember there's a part in the book where there's uh, characters who are looking for jobs and they, they find there's like these machines around that they can plug their DNA into, like, you know, take a little prick of blood that'll then kind of give them a personality test about what kind of job they should have or something ridiculous like that. And there's lots of drones flying around, but they have kind of fake flesh over them to keep out the smog. And so for me, I was always trying to kind of tie it back thematically in that way, which is something that I really love in a lot of science fiction and fantasy. And I think is very useful for uh, making a world feel really concrete and, um, and also different from other worlds. Uh, if I can shout out another author, Someone who I think does this really brilliantly is N.K. Jemisin in her, you know, widely acclaimed Broken Earth trilogy, where she kind of creates a fantasy world, but it's all kind of tied to a concept of geology. So there's kind of monsters, uh, there's animals that are kind of related to that, and there's creatures called stone eaters, and the main the main magical users can control kind of earthquakes and things like that, and it's all tied together in that way that makes it feel very distinct. Um, so that was one thing I, I was attempting. Okay. One thing I really enjoyed looking at the, the political side and the systemic impacts of what you're doing is in the real world, we're talking a lot about body autonomy, um, especially in relation to uh, legislation. And so in your world, we there's this freedom to, to modify your body and I, make sure that I, I got this right. You can either go the cybernetics route or the biopharma route. Can you explain the difference between those two, uh, I guess, options? Sure, sure. Well, I mean, I think in the world of the book, an individual can do whatever they want. Um, there's not, a, you know, a kind of, of rule about that. But in the book, there is this sense that there's these sports leagues, some of which allow cybernetics and some of which don't. So I guess I think that we, we are heading towards a future in which there is 
a lot of body modification that will be possible. And we're already in a certain sense there, right? I grew up in the 90s during the Major League Baseball's big steroid scandals. And there was lots of debates about, you know, what counts as proper athletics and what is just chemistry, right? Like what is helping athletes achieve peak human form and what is a distortion of that form? Mm-hmm. And my thinking, not about what I personally believe, but in what I think humans might settle on, is that things that modify the body to too large of an extent that it feels unhuman to the viewer, so cybernetics, right, like a, a truly robotic arm, would maybe be banned by sports leagues, which have their own kind of rules to enforce. And that in the, in the world of the book, the current popular sports leagues all allow kind of pharmaceutical enhancements that don't make one inhuman, again, to the average person. I'm not making my own kind of political statement there. Yeah. Uh, Does that answer your question? Yeah, no, it does. And we have our main character who has cybernetics um, applied to him. And as a result, he kind of feels like an outsider, especially when people start to attack him or put him down for being almost not human. But meanwhile, he has his brother who is being pumped with all these things to be a a high performing sports player. And you can see the difference in like what is acceptable and what is scary for some people. Yeah. And also in the the kind of background world of the book, the idea is that cybernetics kind of take off for a bit, but then are eclipsed by more genetic editing kind of based and pharmaceutical based Mm -hmm. enhancements. And so there's a sense that the people who are still kind of heavily cybernetic are, you know, behind the times and are looked down upon in that sense. Yeah. And I totally get that when you look back in the last couple of decades and you see the bulky computers versus now where everything is so streamlined and sleek and digital and right. being able to go in and modify DNA just seems like to be a good comparison. I outlined the positives and negatives for body modifications, because obviously we, I'm sure we can think of a lot of good things for the idea of body modifications. Like you were saying, if you're sick or you have an ailment or something like that, that you can, uh, uh, you can fix it with body modifications, whether cybernetic or through uh, pharmaceuticals. So I, I grabbed some quotes. One of them was, we're all born with one body and there's no possibility of a refund, no way to test drive a different form. So how could anyone not be willing to pay an arm and a leg for a better arm and a better leg? I thought that was really neat. Um, I also see, uh, I, this was a really fun part where you mentioned an actor named Stanton Dune who had severed both his legs for his latest movie role. Um, his limbs were being put in cryopods and, and, um, they were talking about how he goes above and beyond with extreme body modifications to show, you know, how dedicated he is to the role. And I thought that was so interesting. Yeah, that's a good example of kind of what I was saying before of trying to tie every little world building detail into the the central thematic questions. So yeah, it's kind of like Christian Bale in a future uh, uh, world in which you could maybe sever body parts and then reattach them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, where he goes, I act with every part of my DNA. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I definitely saw uh, Christian Bale, Robert Downey Jr. When he um, in Tropic Thunder, they were making fun of uh, method actors, and I just thought that oh, was yes. <laughs> cool interpretation. And then, of course, you have your cons. So, quote: two decades of improvements, and I still wanted more. But now I had six figures in medical debt crushing me like a beetle under a brick. Um, and I think that is a trap that a lot of people get into even today with medical, um, treatments and the like, where you, you think you're doing something to help oh, yourself yes. and then you're, you're just stuck. You're, you're in a prison of debt. Yeah. So I think, you know, a lot of the cons come down, come down to questions of, I guess, 
you might just say capitalism, right? Or our kind of already in this, you know, in 2022, very dystopian healthcare system. I, I don't know, you know, I mean, what can we say? What can I say that hasn't been said before? But it's, it's very strange to live in a time in which you can log on social media and you're just seeing your friends or I see my friends who are raising money to pay for kind of basic healthcare that definitely should be something covered by society or who are posting about how they went to the hospital for some kind of in-network procedure, but they were surprised with an out-of-network doctor and their bill is now $500,000 or something insane. So yeah, I was certainly in the book kind of extrapolating from our existing reality. And that, I do see that as a, an area of a lot of downsides for sure. Yeah. And you talk about the dark side of it too, the gamification of healthcare, where you have game shows where uh, quote, a group of people huddled over a cadaver made of replacement parts, some metal, others pulsing flesh. And each contestant was touching a different piece, a leg, a lung, a set of teeth that they could win. The people looked sick and almost certainly were. A woman gripping the wet frame lung kept coughing blood into her other hand. And I think that's an interesting look at, um, it makes me think of, I think it's called like the biggest loser where we're gamifying health uh, for other people's entertainment. And you're seeing the the results of that here. Yeah, you know, I think that that's a good comparison. And then, I mean, there's lots of, (laughs) again, I'm not saying anything new here, but lots of very kind of depressing uh, game show ideas out there. I feel like, and now I wonder if I'm just making this up, but I feel like there was an idea where there was going to be a TV show that would cancel student debt for the winners. And I think there was like backlash and it got canceled or perhaps I just dreamt this up, but certainly- I wouldn't be surprised if that was the case. (laughs) Yeah, but that was certainly the kind of thing I was was thinking about there. And I think that the the show was also a bit of a, a joke about that old TV show called, or that old kind of competition called Hands on a Hard Body, you know, where you have people who, put their hand on a vehicle and the last person to stay like standing touching the vehicle wins it Mm -hmm. this is the same thing you're basically making entertainment out of people who who are poor and like need help and like need a car they don't need to stay in there until their body breaks down they need they need a car yeah and that's what I love about science fiction is that you're able to make societal commentary on very real and very concerning issues in the story in a context that is easy to digest and understand to then make the connection back to real life. And you make a connection to black market. So obviously, just like now, uh, if people don't have the money or accessibility to healthcare needs, they if they're if they have the means and the ability to do it, they'll look into other ways. And here you have the black market where uh, things are stretched with microplastics and laboratory runoff, and so by using black market resources, are poisoning themselves with medicine. And um, they'll do at home surgeries, which look really gross and and concerning uh, when you when you see what they look like. Yeah, and that, you know, it's once again like it's very much just um, hyperbolizing what is already the case today, or you know, is very sadly will be the case very soon uh, in regards to abortion rights. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, but yeah, even now, you know, we have plenty of people who, yeah, if you don't have the healthcare, you have to figure out some way to to handle that, um, and often that is at home in very dangerous ways. Yeah, so taking all of that and applying it to your world of baseball. I really was entertained by the names of your baseball teams. 
the Monsanto Mets uh, was really uh, Monsanto just moved in close to my place. Um, and they, they've since, I think they got bought out by Bayer. By, uh, hmm? Yeah. And then the brand name got retired. So I had actually started the book before the brand name was retired. So I had to like add in a little line explaining that. Yeah. No. And I totally got it because Monsanto, I mean, it, it has a reputation and that was one of the things we dealt with in my local community area was when Monsanto came in. Um, and Monsanto was trying to rectify some of that perception by trying to be a part of community events. And I don't, I don't know how successful that was, but then their name changed and maybe that helped. But the fact that you had Monsanto Mets and then you had um, Chicago bio white mice, the pyramid pharmaceutical sphinxes, uh, I just thought that was an interesting tie-in to show the way that I saw it was you have these powerful companies that are, and it talks about the conditions of the economy infiltrating the sporting industry and they, because they, their identity becomes synonymous with the, the American pastime, which tells you like it's overall impact on American culture. And I really liked that. But the thing that you explored was how, um, these baseball players are getting access to things to help enhance their performance. Uh, so the capitalistic, uh, competition is bleeds into the sports competition. Can you talk a little bit about how you leaned into the sports aspect of your story? Yeah. Well, I think, you know, there's a lot of things being tied together there that again, are kind of like already existing today, right? Like we obviously exist in a, in a time in which corporations heavily sponsor sports, uh, you know, stadiums are named after corporations that pay a bunch of money uh, to, to get their name on the stadium. And then at the same time, sports are still even today, sometimes kind of loss leaders for companies that are looking to just kind of build brand recognition. So that, that's probably in, you know, 2022 is more easily seen in something like Formula One racing, where, you know, if you're Mercedes and you're, you're in, your engine does really well and your team wins, you know, hopefully you sell more cars. So that's kind of like what's happening in this world in which these pharmaceutical companies and, uh, and biotech companies run these teams as basically lost leaders, but it, they also kind of run it as a kind of guinea pig testing ground, right? So the players are used for experimental testings. And if, then if they do really well, they win the World Series, you know, Monsanto wins the World Series, presumably people go down to their local, you know, CVS or future CVS and buy Monsanto energy gum or whatever they may buy. I, that's so, and so looking at today's world, when you think about uh, the Olympians and how they might have access to certain things because countries really, really want to have an edge on each other oh, and, yeah. and what that means for like policy and human rights and all that stuff. I just, that's so interesting. Another thing that I actually hadn't known about at the time, but I, I think is kind of, I don't know, bizarre shows how, how weird our world is, is that, you know, another kind of aspect of, for, for me is that we live in this world in which these billionaires, even today, like, you know, compete against each other, right? We have like Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk and Richard Branson all like racing to get into space first and things mm -hmm. like that. And there's this kind of, you know, ridiculous billionaire, um, you know, dick measuring contest yes. or something. Uh, so I couldn't think of a, a more polite way to say that. Um, and I was kind of trying to transfer that to sports, which again is already kind of the case, right? You have big billionaire, um, loudmouth um, CEOs, uh, people like Mark Cuban, who I find more endearing than a lot of the other big billionaires out there as far as that goes. Um, but the thing I was going to say that was funny is that 
I hadn't really realized that there are right now over in Japan, a couple, there's like a pair of billionaires who hate each other, who both have sports teams that are named after their corporations. It's um, the SoftBank Hawks and the Rakuten Eagles. I might have their team names wrong. (laughs) And they basically just like, you know, it's kind of a similar thing to the book, just these billionaires using sports teams as a way to one-up each other. Interesting. And meanwhile, you just think about how I I write about this and I don't know if it's true because I didn't see it myself, but Elon Musk had once at one point asked like, what can I do to end world hunger or make the world better? And how much money would it cost or something? And he got like a bunch of responses on what he could do. And then he just like bought Twitter instead. It's one of those (laughs) things where it's like, what could you be doing with those resources rather than just fighting with each other? Yeah, I think it was that the UN or, or an agency of the UN was like, we could end world hunger with $6 billion. I think that was probably like in world hunger for a year and not for all time. Gotcha. And he was like, if you prove to me that that can happen, I'll, I'll donate the money. And apparently they wrote him like a very long detailed plan. And he just never, oh. never sent them the money. <laughs> okay. Well, all right. Let's talk about robots, which I loved. Can you describe your use of robots and animals and waiters and all that stuff, the service industry in general? I, I thought it was a really great. Oh yeah. Well, I was definitely... Thinking, I mean, I'm hardly the first person to be thinking about this, right? But thinking about the automation that's coming and that is going to take away a lot of jobs and the kind of disruption that'll cause to the economy and and the world. I don't know. I think that is actually something that we don't talk about enough, or at least I'm quite worried about. And I will give a shout out to a book that I, a nonfiction book that I, I really leaned on when I was thinking about that, which is called The Rise of the Robots. Let me quickly Google this author. Um, mm-hmm. Martin Ford is, is the author of it. But it was, it's a great book that kind of goes into the details of how advanced we already are at AI and robotic kind of job replacements. Like they already have octopus-like machines that can go and pick oranges instead of people picking them. Interesting. And uh, again, I was just kind of like extrapolating from there to a certain degree. So there's a lot of automation and AI um, yeah, replacement of jobs. And so in my book, I, I went with a lot of drones, I think is what I call them. And so there's a lot of, yeah, drone waiters that kind of come out. So the second chapter takes place in a fancy Manhattan sushi restaurant in which the food is delivered by little seagull shaped um, drones. Mm-hmm. So that, that, that was kind of what I was playing around with, because I do think that that is, I mean, I think it ties into the central questions, because I do wonder what happens to to us and, and society, if we kind of stay on the path we are on and we get that kind of great automation job replacements, you know, by, by, path, by path we're on, I mean, if we don't change to a radically different economy in which there's universal basic income and other things to help people, what does that kind of future look like? So yeah, and that, I, that was what I was thinking about. I liked your incorporation of psychology into it as well. Like, were you saying that it was designed with Disney in mind with gigantic eyes and a smile carved into the beak. And uh, I liked this. It was caught in some grotesque tug of war between machine flesh and cartoon. Uh, The animal shaped trend was nostalgia pining for the biodiversity we'd lost. So I'm guessing in this future, a lot of that, uh, a lot of these animals are extinct and they have to recreate them in a different form. And then not only that, but they have a time limit. They're designed to, uh, I believe, do they just get exterminated at a certain time or they just stop working or they melt, they melt, right? At a certain time, we can't use them anymore. 
Yeah, there, well, so there's kind of like two different things in the book. One is just kind of robots that are that are drones that are kind of shaped to look like animals, you know, as a kind of, well, just as I expect corporations to do, right? Like, I don't think in our future, if we're going to have drones that are actually interacting with us, they're not going to look like some cold science fiction idea from the 50s. They'll probably, you know, they'll be Disney drones that look like Mickey mm-hmm. Mouse or something horrifying like that, right? Yeah. And then at the same time, there are these genetically edited animals that are like living organisms in the book that are called uh, Zootech that, yeah, have a kind of pre-programmed shelf life on them, which is, you know, there's a kind of classic capitalist concept of planned obsolescence, which you, you intentionally make products that will break down earlier than they could so that people have to buy more mm-hmm. products like and dishwashers, so this is like, <laughs> dishwashers yeah, refrigerators like, and cars <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's like either you have to or, or like fast fashion right you know mm-hmm. I, I i have some clothes from famous fashion fast flash uh, i don't know why i can't say that fast fashion brands that the stitching just suddenly like starts coming undone a year a year into yeah. owning them okay why is that happening um see so, you know i was trying to make that to me kind of horrible concept already even more horrifying in this body focused future where you have actual living organisms that are planned to die yeah well and as people are getting kind of worried or scared and and cloning is another issue you talk about as well but when we talk we talk about artificial intelligence or cloning anything that kind of makes people feel a little bit threatened um i guess planned obsolescence would be I could see it as being the, all right, this is the workaround. You can have this thing, this artificial intelligence that looks like this, but in a year it's going to die. You don't have to worry about an uprising. We've still got control of the situation. And I I thought that was just an interesting thing to explore. And then not only that, but you had Congress had recently passed a law requiring warning lights in your drones and the animal forms, because some people might be tricked into thinking they, they were scared of being tricked into thinking that something fake was real. Hitting those kind of thematic questions, but again, the kind of thing that I imagine could very well happen, right? I do imagine if you had a future where you have androids that look like people, which is not what's happening in my book. There's not androids, but uh, or drones that look like animals. Then, yeah, Congress people would probably want laws like that. Yeah, I and I could see that as like a, a workaround. It's like, okay, we're moving towards this technology. Here's some safeguards. You feel safe now, kind of thing. But then it <laughs> pulls into the ethics of you know, what exactly are we creating? You have these animals, like, is it perceived life? Oh God, my gosh, I can (laughs) just imagine. They'll just keep blowing up from there. So then talking about life that isn't really life, but manifested uh, artificially, we have food farming and agriculture. Can you talk a little bit about the state of your world as far as um, DNA modifications and, and growing of food? Yeah. So there's some stuff in the book about how they've kind of genetically engineered animals uh, like animals used for food to not have like nervous systems anymore so to be a, the- a theoretically more ethical way to, mm-hmm. to kill animals or to eat meat which or and then there's a lot of meat that is grown in like petri dishes and stuff which is honestly to me something I think will happen but I think you know I have a lot of friends who are who are vegan and I've, I'm you know have and into animal rights and I've like kind of looked at these issues for a long time and I think there was a lot of people who thought that at some point, maybe everyone would kind of ethically become vegetarian or vegan. But to me, it's more likely that what will happen is, you know, factory farm animals will be replaced with meat that's grown in kind of laboratory types, you know, petri dish meat, not literally in petri dishes, but that kind of idea. 
and obviously that stuff is already happening, right? I think they've made a Petri dish hamburgers and, and stuff, not for the mass market yet, but that'll be coming very soon. So yeah, kind of exploring those ethical questions and then also how they get distorted in our profit motivated society, right? Like there, I don't know if uh, the kind of extreme version I have of animals that like literally do not, you know, cows that do not have heads and that are just kind of large amounts of meat being grown on, you know, some kind of scaffolding uh, is ethical at all, but it's the kind of thing that I can imagine our future society possibly producing. Yeah, um, you have, let's see, in order to produce a certain kind of, uh, let's see, the wool. So you have the resulting wool was so sticky, the sheep would get stuck to anything they walked by. So they had to be raised in non-stick cages and fed grass through tubes. And I was like- uh, Right, that, those are like sheep that have been spliced with spider genes so that their wool is like hard silk. <laughs> yeah. that, makes, that makes me think of like the non-stick we need to talk about non-stick anything right now in some communities we're dealing with the after effects of non-stick materials and water supply right it, it bleeds into the ground into the water supply mm. and then into our wells and then we're drinking it and so you think about like an idea all right we want to improve the way that the wool is so let's modify this sheep but then uh-oh there's an issue with them getting stuck to things so now we have to create this new solution which then could end up further contaminating our earth uh it's just an interesting like dinosaur or not um not dinosaur uh what is the thing oh my gosh i'm forgetting how to speak domino well, it's a I, domino effect yeah yeah and that stuff is i always find that stuff really fascinating i was actually um just today i'm listening by the audiobook i'm listening to is this book on like the science of sleep and the chapter i was just listening to was about how about blue light and how we made these more energy efficient light bulbs, which I'm you know, very much in favor of, but that they emit blue light, which actually causes huge problems for our, our sleep and is you know, part of a major kind of issue there. And yeah, there's always these kind of problems that you know, we come up with new technological solutions and they always come up with, or tend to have other problems, right? Yeah, there are these domino effects that are almost never intended and then we have to handle those. And that was, in general, something I really wanted to present in this world, because one kind of pet peeve I have about science fiction is when you have a world in which a new technology is invented and it's introduced seamlessly to society and it's kind of universally accepted and there's more or less no problems. Whereas mm -hmm. I think we always have new technologies that cause a bunch of problems and also cause a wide range of reactions um, from people, you know, ideologically, politically, and individually. And we could look at you know anything that has happened in recent history. Uh, social media is an obvious example, right? There's lots of great aspects of social media, and then there's how that spurns insane conspiracy theories and online hate groups and so on and so forth. And people who resist social media at all, and people who are more or less addicted to it. And I wanted to kind of present that for all the technology in the world. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's a good commentary on on the human condition as we are introducing new ideas and respond to them. The idea that when you invent the high-speed train, you're inventing the train crash. I think that was from Elon <laughs> Mustay from All Are Wrong Today's. He talks a lot about, you're not just inventing the thing, you're inventing the catastrophe. And, and, and so for quote. me, it's like with people, it's like you see similarities time and time again. People are scared of social media. They were scared of TV. They were scared of books. It just keeps repeating itself. 
So let's get, we've talked about this throughout the, the various categories and themes of your book, but I wanted to get more into the politics and society. Um, I thought I was going to read a couple of notes that I wrote down and we can, we can talk at length about um, any of them, but we have the no body left behind fund, uh, which works with international philanthropists to provide physical and cerebral upgrades to low income New York city school children. Um, then you have the, the Newman, this gentleman named Newman was the first test tube president, his genes cut and pasted an embryo with enzyme scissors to possess all the traits of the founding fathers. <laughs> that is such an amazing concept. Um, then there's, oh, and at least that's what the rebranded grand new party claimed. So I, I, introduction of a new political party. That was cool. Uh, then you have the Edenists, uh, which is a, it's an organization that is against all, all these body modifications and the Edenists play a larger role in the overall story. So what were you thinking or what, what was your thought process as you were using politics to guide your story? Yeah, well, you know, kind of like I brought up a few times or I think I was just talking about, I definitely wanted to present a world in which there's political and ideological clashes over all of the central thematic questions and the, the technologies that are, you know, being discussed. So yeah, there in this world, you know, I didn't want to set it down specifically in time, but you know, I imagined it as basically maybe 60 years in the future, something roughly like that. And initially I was kind of playing around a bit more with political structures in America, but I ended up pretty much having just the Democratic and the Republican Party, even though the Republican Party has um slightly rebranded from the grand old party to the grand new party. Mm -hmm. Um and the Edenist, yes. Well, so again, with that kind of, I wanted these kind of different ideological reactions. The Edenists are kind of a hybrid, you know, cliche granola crunching hippies meets kind of very religious, um, your body is a temple kind of concept. I will say that this is an area of the book that I wonder how different it would have been if I had started the book at a different time, because the book came out in 2000, well, came out last year in two, uh, 2021, but I started the book, well, the initial idea for the book was many years ago, but I really started in earnest in 2016, um, and which is to say before the rise of QAnon and mm. some of these other movements that we've seen. And I think if I was writing the book now, the Edenists might end up a lot weirder <laughs> a lot yeah. darker too maybe than they are because they're kind of a to me a very sympathetic group in, in the book um and i you know a minor regret i have is not having maybe a more of a kind of dark mega q kind of group as well yeah i think the last few years have definitely changed the way we look at these political constructs i know like i was really into house of cards on netflix for a while and then mm -hmm. uh everything in the last six eight years happened and i was like Frank in this show is nowhere near as villainous as, you know, things I'm seeing in real life. And, um, it doesn't have that, you know, uh, shock value anymore because the world seems more shocking. Uh, but yeah, I, I, it would be interesting to revisit, um, this place and kind of reapply it to the new normal. Yeah. I guess, you know, when you're asking me about the, the political setup of the country and in, in the, in the book, part of it is that there's been a bit of a breakdown where there's kind of separatist groups in certain parts of the country. And the other part is that, again, kind of like I said, I was kind of trying to hyperbolize and ex extrapolate from the present. And, you know, in the book, basically, 
corporations have a lot more power. There's a lot more deregulation. The Supreme Court has, you know, struck down various controls from the government. So the government is a lot weaker in the book, and it's much more of the kind of corporate, uh, quote unquote, libertarian dystopian future that, well, I guess a lot of those kind of Musk type people want. Yeah, so. it's definitely a cautionary tale. You can see yeah, it's, it's definitely not a positive depiction of that. I don't think. <laughs> Okay. It's not what I want. But if you, would you say that this book is, if you were to say, you know, separate from this world that you've created for a story, do you think that we have a very real chance of going in this direction or do you feel more optimistic about our, our potential? Oh, that's a big question. Um, I mean, I do feel a lot of this is quite likely. Um, again, not the particulars, some of which are, perhaps scientifically impossible or not, but the kind of general direction of things. Uh, that said, I certainly have hope and I think that that is always important. I, you know, there's that Frederick Jameson quote about how it's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism, which I think about a lot. And this book was not trying to be a, a utopian book by any means, but I do kind of think, you know, if I wrote a sequel to this book, I might try to have more of a a hopeful future in there. That said, to me, I feel like, you know, the term dystopian is thrown a lot, around a lot, and I throw it around a lot too, to mean almost anything that's the kind of darker or kind of a negative depiction of a future. But to me, this future is kind of more where we are now, just extrapolated a bit rather than a kind of 1984 style dystopia, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. So there's, yeah. there's moments of beauty and hope and love and, and all of that. And even the technology itself has useful ramifications for, for lots of people or some of it. Mm -hmm. And I think that that'll be very true as well. So let's talk about, this is actually my favorite part, uh, probably the most eye-opening, like, whoa moment for me reading this was your exploration of mind control and surrogacy. Uh, mm -hmm. Particularly like the quote, you're looking at my human telephone. Uh, the, the, the idea that someone can use another person's body to do things for them on their behalf um, but you also explored the socioeconomic impacts of that, how people who are impoverished may seek this as employment uh, because they'll, they'll be paid for it, but they're losing their human freedom. Can you talk a little bit about how you explored this concept? Yeah, well, I think that's exactly right. I mean, that certainly was something I wanted to explore. And a lot of that comes a little later in the book. So I maybe explored it less than my interest in the, the topic um, is. But like, you know, like a lot of things we were saying, there's often these these domino effects, right? And there's, and then all of this is taken, everything that happens in the world, everything that happens in American society is um, influenced by the world and the culture and the political structures and who has power and who has money and all of that. And yeah, I don't know, I find that stuff also terribly plausible in a certain way. You know, we've brought up Elon Musk a couple of times and he has a company called Neuralink, or maybe that's what he names the technology that is trying to interface the mind with computers, in which case, if that kind of technology happened, you very much could sell your brain, you know, or your body in a certain way. And I think in the book, it's almost, I get in that hyperbolizing way, it's almost like a hyperbolization of things like Uber and Airbnb, where we're already in this world, but we're expected, if, if we need, you know, more money to rent out our, our private cars and our private houses and you know and, and even our bodies in a certain extent right there's lots of apps out there where you can hire some person to come over and do a bunch of manual labor for you for 20 bucks or, or whatever mm -hmm. some very cheap amount 
So this is kind of like applying that to actual literal control of the body. Mm-hmm. Well, when we talk about Elon Musk and like the real world application of how can we merge our mind with uh, technology, it makes me think about, I, I painted a hypothetical situation in my head where let's say information is no longer needed to be spoken to us or sent in emails. Now it can be transported directly into your mind. And it's like mind reading. But mm-hmm. then you think about we're in, we're in a capitalistic society. So what's something that's going to get pushed to you? Well, algorithm-based advertisement uh, curated information. So at what point can you say, I am a product of my own development versus I'm a product of all these things that have been fed into me my whole life? Uh, where, where do you stop, stop and the algorithm begin in, in your own human mind? I, I love that. I think that's a great question. A good, a good idea for a science fiction novel. Um, <laughs> and it, it, again, I mean, like what you're saying is obviously very things that we, you and I have to navigate today, right? Like we already live in a world in which we, we have uh, systems that try to auto-complete our thoughts and that mm-hmm. feed us advertisements based on whatever variables that they're tracking and feed us, you know, we talked about kind of various online conspiracies and stuff. And again, I'm saying nothing new here, but we, we live in a world in which there's micro-targeted ads that are created particularly to enrage us based on our browsing habits and, and so on and so forth. So it's already, we're, you know, we're all in our own little echo chambers that have been devised by algorithms then not even necessarily with nefarious purposes. I think a lot of the horrible stuff that happens in Facebook, to my understanding, is really just a result of those algorithms kind of working quote unquote neutrally and not like Facebook trying to feed people conspiracy theories per se. Yeah, it's, you know, uh, it's go ahead. Oh, I was only gonna say that I think that there was a lot of studies that showed that, right, like things that enrage you are more likely to get engagement on Facebook. So then you're fed more and more things that make you angry. Just I'm those absolutely seeing that. Yeah, absolutely. I, I see people who are trying to just create um, exposure to, let's say they have a store or a project and they find out that the best way to do it is to uh, enrage or trigger people rather than just promoting their, their stuff. And as a result, we just see more and more and more of that. I, I can totally see us moving towards a world. I can see us embracing a world where it's almost seamlessly in your mind. I, uh, one of my jobs is I am in charge of designing or figuring out the best navigation for a website that's supposed to appeal to an extremely large audience. And one of the biggest issues we have is finding the right navigation system for that, for each various different, you know, subcategory in the audience. And I, I just know, like really whenever I hear feedback from people, the best result is if my website can read your mind. And as the algorithms get better and better at doing that, uh, essentially it is kind of what they're doing. And uh, then you start introducing the dark side of that where, well, if we can read your mind to give you, provide you a service, well, we can read your mind and manipulate you, your behavior. And I mean, yeah, like you said, we're already doing it just, you know, at, at a lesser level. Yeah, yeah, exactly. There's that feedback loop already, right? You can kind of read people's behavior and then you learn that, again, things that enrage them maybe get more engagement. So you feed them more of that and then they become more enraged and more extreme in their opinions and, and more isolated from other sources of information and so on and so forth. So yeah, I think that's very much a very live question today. So that, uh, that concludes my world building notes. Is there anything that you'd like to touch on that we haven't talked about yet? No, I really appreciate all your questions. Um, 
And it's, you know, I, I find world building very interesting. You know, I'm someone who teaches science fiction classes. So I talk about it a lot with my students and people have very, you know, different ideas. I guess I've already said this, but for me, it was a lot of it is a, a thematic concern for me. And I'm always trying to kind of have a central question in the work and explore it from a lot of different angles to have thematic richness to it. So that was the hope at least. I, I definitely felt that. I really enjoyed that because not only were you creating an interesting, for me, I always like world building books that make me think and apply and like, oh, okay, let's, this is a really interesting system that they've created, but you also put in meaningful political socioeconomic discussions, as well as an entertainment value. You know, you're, it's a mystery, it's a thriller and it's funny. There's a lot of funny components into it as well. So I think you did a great job, which is why I was really excited to do this with you. <laughs> I do have one question. Could you live in this world that you've created? And if so, what would your occupation be? <laughs> well, I do think I could live in it. I think that we all can, which is maybe again, uh, one of those kind of perpetually dark things about humans is that we can adapt to almost any situation, right? And that is, well, again, it's good and bad. There's there's ways that that's very good and, and ways that it's very bad. What would my occupation be? You know, I have to I have to sound a little pretentious and think that I would be some kind of artist. I would want, I would want to do that in the future if we're allowed to do that, if, you know, the AI robots don't replace us entirely. Oh, that's an interesting ramification uh, that, that that's worth exploring. Cause I feel like in times of darkness, it's always good to be able to rely on the arts, especially for expression. The world you've created, I, I would like to live in because there's a lot of medical advancements that I think could be very beneficial. Of course, it comes with some downsides as people explore the dark sides of those things. Uh, I, I really liked the, the sporting side of it. And I would love to work in media or, or something related because you get to, to see all the craziness that's happening. I imagine that it's going to be really <laughs> complex, if not convoluted with how the media works in that, in that world. Yeah. Right. <laughs> a lot going on there. Uh, anything you'd like to promote? Uh, I don't think I have anything to promote, uh, right now. I don't, I'm kind of finishing up my next novel, but we hasn't been, um, sent around to editors or anything yet. So I have nothing coming out, but, um, I really appreciate, I guess maybe my, actually maybe my publisher should, would want me to note that the book just came out in paperback last week as we're recording this. So awesome. if anyone and likes paper instead of paperback instead of hardback, it's out there. And it's called The Body Scout. Speculative Sandbox is a volunteer run podcast that relies on the collaboration of fellow creators like you. Join the conversation and participate in fun polls and questionnaires on TikTok, Instagram, and Twitter. Interested in being in a future episode? Our DMs are open, or you can email speculativesandbox at gmail.com.